This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field, lost my place there. This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active and true and powerful. And we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word and through this historical narrative that we just read, communicate your power, communicate to us about the person and the work of Jesus, communicate to us about your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would just meet us and strengthen us and open our eyes that we might see how you are who um, you are directing each of us individually and as a church to respond to this passage. So come, Spirit of God, teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Here's something I've noticed in the Book of Acts, and it's sort of an observation that's relevant and live in just the second sermon from the Book of Acts, and it's this: that the Book of Acts not only teaches us through 
actual events that it records not only teaches us through a lot of speeches and sermons, about 30% of the book is going to be sermons, recorded sermons. So it not only teaches us through actual events and sermons, but there's something to learn from the rhythm of Acts as well. There is a distinct sort of rhythm or flow or cycle in the book of Acts. And we see this right now. You see, there are portions of the book of Acts that are just absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. I mean, the next section we're going to look at is chapter 2, and it is unparalleled in the history uh, of the world. The Spirit of God comes and is poured out on the church. There is a wind, and there are like fire above people's heads, and they're speaking in languages they don't know. And Peter stands up and preaches, and 3,000 people come to Christ in a moment and the church is burst. I mean, that uh, birthed. Well, they burst too. They, they went forward, but they, they are birthed. And it is absolutely stunning. A few, a few chapters later, uh, there's this guy named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. Basically, we'll cover it in detail, but here's the, here's the headlines. They come to the church, the newly formed church. They lie. They make a donation and they lie about it. And God kills them on the spot. They fall over dead in church. Individually, the deacons, the young men, I don't know if they're the deacons, carry them out and bury them. And it says nobody, you know, everybody's afraid. Nobody would have anything to do with the church at that point. So the holiness of God is revealed in an astounding way. A few chapters later, Philip is talking to this guy. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, he leads them to Christ. They get baptized. And it says once they get, come out of the water, they're walking. They come out of the water. And Philip disappears. It says he literally disappears. And, and the scripture says then he finds himself in Azotus. I mean, this is stunning. Can you imagine? We have a baptism right here. And Pete Payne brings somebody up out of the water. And then he disappears. And then he texts someone and says, hey, I'm in Arkansas. What, what would you think? That's what happens. And this is stunning. And then uh, all kinds of stuff. Paul's casting demons out of people. At one point, Paul's in prison, and an angel comes in and just says, I'm opening the place. Let's just come on it. They just lets them out. One time there's an earthquake. The doors come open, and Paul is freed from prison. And you read this and go, wow. But it's not a miracle every moment in the book of Acts. There, there's a rhythm. That's not every page. That's not every page. You see, you also have unrecorded stuff like people doing laundry. I mean, they're, they're going on and having a life. People going to work, harvesting the wheat, cooking meals. You got normal life. You got other things that happen. Like it says they gathered for fellowship. They're having meals. Every meal is not a miracle. They're going to church services and hearing teaching. One church service, Paul is teaching, and a guy falls asleep in the church service. So those of you doing that say there's a biblical precedent, but you'll want to know what happens next. He falls out of the building once he falls asleep. He's on a ledge up on the second floor. But they're going to, they're going to church gatherings and falling asleep in sermons at least once. They're making decisions through church councils, Acts 15. That's not miracle a minute. There's Paul over long periods of time, sitting in a jail cell. That's not miracle a minute. Suffering. They're getting beaten. They're persecuted. So all kinds of things happen. It's not like a miracle a minute. There are these powerful things, and then there are things that feel more normal. And I think that's instructive because... Even in the case of revival, and the book of Acts is a revival, there are rhythms, there are seasons, 
And we get that from the very beginning. I mean, the book starts out with a bang. Last week we covered all this. Luke says, look, the gospel of Luke was only the beginning of what Jesus did and taught. Here's what he continues to do and teach. So Jesus is going to continue to act through the apostles and more than them through the church. So he tells them that. Then he says this, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. And you're going to be my witnesses. There's going to be a power that comes on you. And you're going to go out, not as a political leader, not as a soldier overthrowing the government. You're going to go out as a witness. You're going to tell people about me. And it's going to go viral. And it's going to be international to the ends of the earth. So he gives them this promise. Something's going to happen that's never happened before. You are going to receive this unusual power and be my witnesses. And then after this glorious I mean, what kind of promise would be more glorious than that? After this glorious promise, a glory cloud, we don't know what that is, but some kind of cloud of the very presence of God envelops Jesus and he lifts up in the sky and he disappears in the sky. And they're just standing there looking. And then if that's not enough, there's angels that show up, stand right next to them and say, why are you staring up at the sky? And In essence, they're saying to him, look, Jesus gave you a mission. You are to go and wait for the power of the Spirit to come on you, and then you will be witnesses. Don't just stand around here looking up at the disappearing Messiah in the sky. Get moving. So after that, Jesus goes up in the sky. The next thing I would expect is we go from verse 11 to chapter 2. You know, you would think you would write it this way. And so Jesus went up into the sky, and then the next thing you know, Boom, the Holy Spirit falls on the whole church. People are getting, but that's not how they tell the story. That's not literally how it happened. So they tell what happened in between. And so we get this next section, which is about, so they waited. So they waited. So if I'm honest, I've got to confess that after last week, if you were here, um, It was my perception and a few others that I talked to that the Spirit of God visited us through the text of Scripture and visited us as we waited on him and prayed and asked for him to fill us with his Spirit. It seemed like he was very kindly ministering to him. And when I looked at the next passage and said, we don't go from kneeling here before the Lord to Pentecost, we go to Judas falling into a field and his bowels coming out as he dies, and we go to rolling dice to find the next apostle— I thought we might lose some momentum here (laughs) because what happened to let's get filled with the spirit and then let's go. Now we've got these very, well, challenging texts to interpret. And as I stood back and confessed, boy, that shows a really lack of faith for me because every word of scripture is anointed. Uh, They don't all accomplish the same purpose, but every word is authoritative. Every word is profitable. Every word teaches us, encourages us, rebukes us, challenges us. But as I stepped back before I even got to that, I said, this is very revealing that even in the revival of Pentecost, there was something that they were called to do, which had to do with waiting, which had to do with preparing, which had to do with praying. And they had to wait for God to work. And here's the reality. The reality is that God is at work when we are waiting for him to work. God is at work when we are waiting for him to work. They were waiting for God to do something historic that would change the world. But in the meantime, God's at work. There's no pause button in the providence of God. There's not a moment when God's not caring for you, not working in you, even if you can't detect it. There's not a moment. There's not a moment. And it's just not ongoing, constant 
uh, mountaintop experiences in the Christian life. There are seasons. And so God is at work in all the seasons in different ways. Now, I trust God's going to continue to stir us, and we'll do so today. But as, as he does that, it's as we look at a passage that has to do with waiting. And as they wait, they are preparing for mission. And they're preparing for mission in two ways. They're preparing through prayer. And secondly, they are preparing through uh, appointing leaders or um, preparing by getting their leadership ready and adding an apostle. First of all, it says that they are preparing through prayer for the day of Pentecost and the move of the Spirit. Look at verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem. This is after they saw Jesus go up into heaven. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. A Sabbath day journey is two-thirds of a mile-ish, about six-tenths of a mile. It's the distance you could walk on the Sabbath day, and it wouldn't be considered work. So it's a way of measuring distance. So he said they went back from the Mount of Olivet where Jesus went heavenward. They went into Jerusalem, six-tenths of a mile. They walked, and uh, they went to this upper room where they were staying. And then it lists all the uh, apostles there. So all the apostles, they gather in this upper room. It could have been the upper room where they had the Last Supper. We don't know. I mean, it was there that Jesus promised the Spirit. So it could be they come back there and wait for the promise in the same location. But they're back there. And according to the final verses of Luke, once they come back, they are regularly praising God in the temple. According to here, they are praying in the upper room. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. We'll look at that in a second. But it it, it means persistent, persevering, regular, constant prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So they come back after the ascension and they're spending their time in a couple of places. They're either in the home, in this upper room, praying, waiting on God in unity, or they're praising God and thanking God in the temple. But they are in this position of waiting. What they're clearly not doing is preaching sermons, leading people to Christ, planting churches. That's clearly what they're not doing. They are waiting for the promise. In, in verse 4 uh, of chapter 1, Jesus had said, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So they are called to wait. And while they wait, they're devoting themselves to prayer. Here's a very important theological point. It's not the main point of the text, but it's a, it's a true point. Just because God is going to perform his will, just because God is sovereign, just because God enacts his purposes, it doesn't mean that we don't pray. I mean, didn't Jesus say, this is a fact, verse 4, um, he told them to wait for the promise of the Father. He said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's a guaranteed fact. Jesus says, you're going to be filled with the Spirit, but they go and pray. Well, don't they sovereignly know that Jesus already said he's promised he's going to do this. It's a fact. God's going to do what God wants to do. God's going to perform his will. Yes, but they still pray. They still pray. Prayer is preparatory for God's work. Actually, prayer is God's work. That's part of the point here is that he's at work even when we're waiting for him to work. So they have a promise, but they still pray. And they devote themselves to prayer because they are dependent See, between the promise and between the fulfillment of the promise, there is prayer. There is waiting. There is expectancy. There is confidence. There is crying out in God. There is availability. They are dependent people. They cannot make these things happen. They can't make the mission happen. 
They are dependent on the Holy Spirit to empower them. And so they are praying. And that is what prayer is fundamentally about. Prayer is fundamentally about acknowledging our need, acknowledging God's power, and asking for the two to intersect. His his power meeting us in our need. That's what prayer is. Prayer is not just me, you know, downloading a laundry list of desires onto God, though we are to make requests. But prayer is about me seeing my need and coming before him. It's acknowledging our need. And they are very well aware of their need. And so they are devoting themselves to prayer, even though they have a promise that something's going to happen. They're aware of their need. They're crying out to God. They're asking for God's empowering. The more we see our need, the more we will pray. This is just a truth I've seen in my own life. The more I see my need, the more I will pray. The less I see my need, the more I will continue on in my own strength. My problem with prayer is not that I lack self-discipline. My problem with prayer is that I lack a real clear awareness of my need and the loving Father who desires to meet all of my needs and glorify himself through me. Because when I see those things, I'm talking to the Father. I'm crying out when I see that. When I don't, I'm going on about my business managing things in my own strength. See, the church is birthed in prayer because the church is birthed through weak people that are dependent on an almighty God, and we are the same. We are the same. I mean, they had a lot of advantages we didn't have. Like, they were eyewitnesses. Jesus hung out with Jesus, saw his ascension. So if they needed to wait, if they needed to pray, if they needed to be dependent on the Lord, there's a real good chance I do. There's a real good chance you do. Look how they pray. First of all, they pray unified prayers. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. One accord prayers. They're in one accord. Now, it doesn't mean they are together physically in the supper room or in the temple as well. It doesn't just mean that they're together physically. One accord doesn't mean we were in the same place. The fact we're all in this room right now, we can't say everybody at the first service was in one accord. That's not what the word means. We could say we were all in the same room. I pray we're in one accord. We generally are as far as I know, but but I don't know. We could ask around. Maybe we're not. But a one accord doesn't mean we were just all in the same room. It means that there is a unity of heart, a unity of mind, a unity of purpose, a unity of vision, a unity of hope. See, why are they in one accord? Because they're gathered around a common mission. Why are they all there in the upper room? Because they happen to be a part of, the, part of the same religion? Because they want to investigate more about their religion? Because they're just really good friends? No, the reason they're all in the room together is Jesus said, I'm going to make you witnesses and you're going to take the gospel to the whole world. I'm sending you as my representatives to preach the gospel. They are unified around a common mission, a common purpose. We need the spirit of God together to fulfill the purposes that he has given us. That is the key to their unity. And I want to, I want to submit this, that that's the key to our unity as well. Not the only key, but that it is a key to unity. The church begins at this point in unity because all they have is a promise of the Spirit and a commission to reach people with the gospel. And so with that, they're gathering around that and praying. They're gathering around that and praying. See, when I'm thinking about my preferences, my desires, the way I want the church to be, the way I want you to be, 
When you're thinking about your desires, your opinions, your preferences, the way you want the church to be and the way you want me to be, that's just not really a good recipe for in one accord union. But if we come to the Lord aware of a common need, our need for the Spirit, if we're gathering before the Lord with our common need, a need for the Spirit, a common mission, Lord, help us to be witnesses, then we will experience the sweetness of one accord. There's more to that. There's more to one accord than common mission, but there's certainly not any less to it. And I don't mean to overstate the case. People can separate over mission. It's going to happen later in the, God, in the book of Acts. But it is a rallying point. I was thinking about this, thinking about how they're in one accord, how, what are they praying for? Well, he doesn't say exactly what they're praying here. We could look elsewhere at what they pray for in the book of Acts. But we do have the context. So I think it's very fair to say they're praying about the Holy Spirit. They're praying about being witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth because that's what Jesus has called them to go and wait for. I was thinking about this. Common one accord unity around mission and the Holy Spirit. And I just had this thought. One of the places I personally touch unity in our church, I touch it in a lot of places, but one of the places I touch it most, I was thinking, is in the Friday morning prayer meeting. I don't know everyone in that meeting well. It's not a huge gathering by any means. I'm not best friends with everybody in there. I'm not social, like I'm hanging out with all those people all the time. It's a, it's a mixed gathering of different people. But every week there is prayer for the Holy Spirit. There's prayer for mission. It's not a prayer time centered around, uh, here's what needs to be fixed and here's my opinion. And what I really think is it's a prayer of God, you are glorious. We need you. Fill us with your spirit. Help us reach our city. Help us reach our region. Help us reach the nations. We pray for the nations as well sometimes. Help us to reach the world with the gospel. Wow, that's a pretty unifying environment. What I find is that people who gather with other people with a heart of their dependence on the Lord and their need for the Lord and a crying out to be filled with the Spirit and made witnesses like we see in verses 111, 1 through 11, those kind of people are unifiers and not dividers. They're unifiers. I was just thinking about this. The next time you sense divisiveness in your own heart, from someone else. The next time you sense conflict in the body of Christ, the next time you sense separation, or here's a word, the next time you sense discord, which would be the opposite of being in one accord, take a test and see, do I sense this spirit pervading the conversation, the, what I'm reading, what I'm saying, what I'm thinking, what someone else... It's, ask, is this present amidst the discord? Is this attitude present? Fill us with the spirit Make us witnesses for Christ. Burden us with the needs of those who don't know you, Lord. And use us for your glory to tell the good news to those who are currently under the wrath of God. Is that attitude predominant? Not in my experience. Not in my experience. So they're gathered in one accord. And they're praying. And they're waiting. And they're dependent. Because God... Jesus said, you need the Holy Spirit, and he's going to fill you. And Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses. And so they gather and humble themselves in prayer. Needy people praying for the power of God to enable them to be witnesses to fulfill his outward mission are usually unifiers and not dividers.
And that's what they're experiencing there. There's going to be some division later in the book of Acts. But right here, there is a sweet, precious unity around Jesus Christ and around their need, around his promises, and around their mission. I want that kind of unity in my own life and for us as well. They not only pray in one accord, though, they pray persistently. Look at what he says. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brother. So they are persistent. This same language is used elsewhere in the New Testament. For instance, Romans 12, Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. It's the same word, be constant in prayer. Or Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer. One Bible commentator said it this way, and this this helped me because it was a bit down home. He said, they stuck to praying. That's how he translated it. It it didn't make it in my version. The ESV didn't like that, but I like that. They were in one accord, and they stuck to praying. They stuck to praying. What did they do? They stuck to praying. They made their need aware to God. See, sticking to praying, that's where we encounter God. That's where we receive his power. That's where we understand his heart as we read his word and pray. That's how the mission goes forth. that's, That's the other reason the rhythm of Acts is this way. God gives a promise and they wait and pray for him to act because he's going to empower them. They're anticipating something. They'd just seen the risen Jesus appear into the sky. What more do they need? What more do they need? I mean, they've seen it. They've got the message. What more do they need? They need the spirit who had not been poured out now. We do have the indwelling spirit. The spirit has been, we live post-Pentecost. I understand that. But we're going to see post-Pentecost people praying in the book of Acts as well. I understand something unique is happening in chapter 2. But there's something also that's a, a, a truth and a pattern here. That we're to stay devoted to prayer, constant in prayer, Colossians 4, even post-Pentecost, to be, for that to be the case. They stick to praying because the Spirit's about to invade them and change the world. Here, here's what I'm aware of, Grace Church. We cannot make our church grow deeper in godliness. We cannot make our church grow deeper in fellowship. We cannot make our church grow wider in outreach by any method. There's not a method. There's not a technique. There's not some silver bullet out there. If we just apply these seven principles, we will all mature and we'll reach a lot of people with the Lord and we'll plant churches and we'll send people to the nations and we'll reach our neighbors and uh, revival will occur because we put the steps together. I think the book of Acts is going to show that the steps are like really simple. They're pray. Apply, preach the word and apply the scripture and pray some more and trust the Holy Spirit moves and acts. It's really not, you read the book of Acts, it's really not complicated, it's divine. It's really not complicated, it's, it's majestic. It's the Holy Spirit at work in lives. Doesn't mean we don't plan, doesn't mean we don't have a methodology, doesn't mean we don't have a calendar with things on it, doesn't mean that we don't have activities it just means none of those can be a substitute for the Holy Spirit. We're increasing our activity as a church, especially in the area of outreach. And uh, 
which I could not be more excited about. I, I really couldn't. 100% for it. I'm more. I'm 110% for it. But we dare not trust on more activity. We dare not trust. We're, we're going to be in good shape. We're studying the book of Acts. <laughs> That's good. But we need to like do the, what the book of Acts says and respond as well. I, I need to trust the Lord that he will work. We dare not trust in a lot of activity. We dare not trust anything or anyone but him. So let's be dependent. Let's be expectant. I just want to compare us to them. If they were dependent, having been with Jesus, how much more are we? Expectant. They had a promise that that Jesus was going to work through them. We've got a promise too. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That doesn't stop with the death of the last apostles. That's continuing right now. He is building his church. He is building his church amidst difficulty, suffering, trial, persecution, He's building his church amidst um, our own weaknesses and sins. He is building his church by the power of his spirit. And we must recognize how much we need him. We also need to recognize where he's answering prayer. After last Sunday, um, between the services, I encountered someone. uh, And this is what the person said to me. This is all they said about the service that I recall. They just said, this is what we've been praying for. That's what we've been praying for. So let's continue to pray. Let's thank God. Let's trust him. And let's stay unified around the gospel and the gospel mission. Because that's what we see right here. Here's the other thing they did. Was they prepared through positioning leaders. They prepared through positioning leaders. The next section which talks about Judas. And which talks about the new apostle. It's not about about suicide. Uh, It's not about um, decision making. It's not about selecting leaders. Uh, It's about preparing the church for the mission. It's the last step before the church is birthed. So it's one of these preparatory steps. And so if we read it that way, that's helpful. We realize what's really going on here. Well, they are preparing for chapter two, because once you get the apostle in place, the 12th apostle, then they're ready, ready to go. So Peter stands up and he says they're going to select a new apostle because Judas is Well, he's no longer with them. Verse 17, he was numbered among us and he was allotted his share in our ministry, but he is no longer with us. And then there is in my Bible, in the ESV, verse 18, a parenthesis, 18 through 19 are parenthetical statements because they probably weren't part of Peter's speech. They were what Luke added because he's saying we need a new apostle. So Luke's going to say, in case you didn't know, here's what happened to the other one. And he gives us an explanation. Uh, What he tells us is that this man acquired a field, verse 18, with the reward money of his wickedness. He turned Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver. So he was a betrayer, turned Jesus in. He fell headlong, burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. I mean, that is graphic, is it not? Some have pointed to this and said, well, there's a problem that's inconsistent uh, with what we read in the Gospels. Gospel of Matthew says that Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, he hung himself. Luke says that he fell headlong and burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. happened in this field that he had acquired, which is now called the field of blood, is what they came to call it. I mean, I want to comment on that because that is a question that is raised sometimes. Um, it's certainly... Uh, 
an account from two different witnesses telling an account from two different angles. It's pretty, it's not difficult, I don't think, to harmonize how the two could have happened. One that's suggested by commentators is he could have hung himself on a tree, which over, which was, you know, over a, a, over the field itself, perhaps if there's a cliff and a field or a cliff and an area below it, he could have hung himself there. A branch could have broken. He could have fallen and he hung himself and his, and his, uh, his midsection burst open when he hit the ground. Another one, this is graphic, but uh, another one is that it's possible that he hung himself and was left hanging. His body was in a decomposed state and just broke off and fell and his guts burst when he hit the ground. Because the word fell headlong, if you look at at the footnote there, at the book at the bottom, it says that it means swelling up. It means swelling up. So he swelled up and then burst. And so... That, that, that could be the situation as well. There's certainly not um, contrary accounts, but just different accounts. Why the gruesome language there? Well, the gruesome language is because it reveals that Judas was really cursed for his actions. He was judged. There's an utter, complete, disgusting, horrific devastation as as a result of his uh, uh, defying Christ and turning on Christ, his hatred of Christ, his love of money, his love of self that would will him to turn traitor on Jesus. There's an ultimate devastation. He goes on to quote two different Psalms, Peter does as he's speaking. He says in verse 20, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. His camp, or in this case the field, he's taken this from Psalm 69. It's a statement of judgment. And so he's saying, where he is, it's a desolate place. There's no life. It's devastating. It's a picture. He wants us to see, the Holy Spirit wants us to see the gruesomeness of a life that ends by self-inflicted killing. And then his remains just spread in destruction in a field of blood. It's supposed to be disgusting. It's supposed to be horrific. It's supposed to put the fear of God in us to see the ultimate result of one who refuses the love of God and lives their own way and for themselves. So it's supposed to be sobering. He gives us this detail, and then he tells us what they're going to do about it. He quotes Psalm 109, which says, let another take his office. And so Peter makes the point that we're going to have a replacement for Judas, and um, so they, he then records how that happens. Now, this isn't just a personnel matter. This isn't just an administrative matter. This isn't like, well, let's kind of put something up on Craigslist. We've got an opening on the team. Come join the team. You know, apply here. So it's not, it's not like we need the help. We really got to have a 12th guy because 11 guys can't pull off this world mission. Tell the whole world that's going to at least take 12 and not 11. It's not a personnel issue. It's not a team issue. It's, it's in many ways symbolic. They're replacing the 12th witness. They're replacing the 12th apostle. The old covenant is represented by the 12 tribes of Israel. And the foundation of the new covenant people of God will be the 12 apostles of Jesus, who he personally appointed, 
who are primarily witnesses. That's what he says. You'll be my witness. So we need a 12th witness. This is the new community. This is the foundation of the people of God. So there's something theological happening here. It's not that 12 is a special number. There's something theological happening here that the 12 apostles serve as the foundation of the church because they are witnesses to the death and resurrection. They are resurrection witnesses. They are ascension witnesses of Jesus Christ. And so they form the new community and they deliver the verbal witness, the message that will, the church will be built on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul, Peter here says there's some qualifications for these people, it, for this guy. It's not just that he be a great teacher, that people really like him. He's kind of a people person and people love him. And th- he doesn't give that list of qualifications. What does he say the qualifications are for this person? 21, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. We want someone who was there at the baptism of John from the very beginning of the mystery, someone who saw Jesus, who saw what he did. And not only that, but we need someone who saw him in his resurrected state as he came and resurrected for 40 days. He taught them about the kingdom of God. We need someone who knows, who heard Jesus, who saw Jesus in his glorified body, who learned from Jesus. He's got to be a, he's got to be a witness to the resurrection. Who's been with us till the end and ultimately the ascension. Why? Because the primary job description of this person is a credible witness who will deliver the truth and the church will be built on it. The scripture will be written and we are all built upon the verbal testimony of what Jesus did and what he continues to do through that verbal testimony. So that is why the church is built. There's a really important point here. The church is built on the gospel. The church is built on a message. The church is built on a testimony of truth. And the church is built upon the foundation of these 12 apostles. And so they go through a decision-making process. Did they gamble? I mean, that's what some people might be wondering. Sounded to me like they gambled. They cast lots and figured it out. Well, first of all, Here's what they did. They apply scripture generally to start with. Peter says, the Bible says, let another take his office. So he applies that and says, we're going to have to have another person. So they, they interact with the scripture. Then secondly, they use what I might call or what we might call common sense. They say he has to be a witness like the other apostles. He has to be around from the beginning. He has to be around to have seen the resurrection at the end. Third, it says, after they... They put forward these two guys. So they got it down to two guys when they gave the qualifications. Maybe there's only two guys with them. I don't know. Maybe there's really only two who meet that, who were there the whole time. We don't really know. Um, who, or who meet that and were willing. It's pretty risky. You're, the guy you're representing was just crucified and is just opposed. So joining them is a very risky endeavor. Their own safety. And he says, and they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. So they used some common sense to say what kind of person this need to be. Then they prayed. Word of God, common sense, prayer. That's how you make decisions. They go one step further and they... Uh, say, to take place in this ministry of apostleship from which Judas turned aside to get to his own place, and they cast lots. So they do step four, 
And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. What is the casting of lots? Well, it was an Old Testament practice. They didn't make this up. It was an Old Testament practice. Um, And as I read about it, I couldn't find any two people to agree. Like, I wanted to see, show me a casting of lots. Is this something you can buy down at the Christian bookstore? (laughs) Is this something? Where do you get these lots? What is this? And I just could not. They all describe different things, so it's somewhat, there's different opinions. But here's one helpful verse. Proverbs 16.33 says uh, that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That's important because this is the Lord's decision. The lot is cast in the lap. So that, that sounds like it's a flipping of a coin or something. Like the lot is cast, and when it lands, uh, you can know what the answer is. Some people said it's a stone or a rock where you wrote both guys' name on it. And you put it in some container, perhaps you shook it up, and then you reached in and pulled one out. So that'd be like drawing, you know, drawing a name. Uh, some said it was numbers on rocks, and you shook them up and threw them. That would be like dice. So is it like flipping a coin? Is it like dice? Is it like pulling a name? I, I don't know. It doesn't say. But the key is that it was a way for them to make a decision with the Lord's initiative. Why do they do that? We don't see it happening any other time in Acts. When James, the apostle, is killed later in the book, they don't replace him. They don't say, who's got the lots? We've got to get a new guy. They don't do that. It's done. We got the 12. Now, Acts 2, the church is going, and they don't start replacing apostles when they die down the road. They start with 12. Why is it important to cast a lot? Well, Jesus picked the first 11. He personally called the first 11. So they go to the Word. They use common sense. They pray, but they're going to let Jesus pick the last one through this method, and they're going to trust that the Lord, Proverbs 16, it's every decision is from the Lord. So they're going to trust the Lord's going to specifically appoint this guy. After he's appointed, we have the 12, we have the foundation, we go on. We don't see anywhere else in the New Testament where that's a methodology for decision-making. When Paul says set in elders in the churches, there's no mention about doing this kind of thing. It is, here's their character. So we need to, we got the scripture. We got common sense. Does this guy match the character? We pray. There's a process of approval and this person becomes an elder. So this seems to be a unique thing, but it represents their trust in the Lord to put the 12th apostle so that they can be ready. So now the stage is set for Pentecost and for the church to be launched. There's a newly constituted apostolic band. They've been praying, they've been waiting, they're eyewitnesses, they're in union over the mission, they're in one accord, common mind, common heart. We need the Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, we're called to mission, reach people with the gospel, and everything's set. Prayer is preparing the way, the work of God, as you wait on the work of God, you pray and God's working through that, he's unifying, he's giving them faith, he's giving them vision. They set the leaders in place, they finalize this so they are ready to move forward. So that's my prayer for us as well, as we look at the rhythms of life, that if you're in a time right now where God is working gloriously, continue to be dependent, continue to look to him, continue to trust him. If you're in a time when you feel like I'm just waiting and nothing's happening, then realize this, God is at work when you're waiting on him to work. When we wait on God to work, he is at work right now. He may want to be teaching you his scripture He may want to be unifying you with others in what he's called you to do. He he may be doing any number of things as you wait and as you pray. But this is a pattern for us to be those people who are waiting and praying and asking him to work. 
I can't take a historical narrative and read us into it and say, we're at exactly the same place. I'm not a prophet. I don't know what God's doing fully. But I can say this, that I do relate somehow, and as other leaders in our church that I've talked to do relate, and with even our future move, I, I, I do relate to the idea that God wants to do something more than he's doing here. I think that's fair to say. I can't say it's revival. I don't know. But I think God wants to do something more, is going to do something more in positioning us to grow deeper in our walk with him, grow closer in our walk with one another, and grow in his power as witnesses reaching out and sending around us. I believe the Lord wants to do more. I don't believe he's finished. I don't believe he's peaked in what he's going to do in our midst. I believe he wants to do more. And so I think a message for us is, God, if that's the case, then I want to get on my knees. I want to be dependent. I want to be listening. I want to be waiting. I want to be preparing. I want to be active right now because you're doing stuff right now. Tons of stuff happening. I want to be active right now, but I want to be constantly looking and praying, Lord, and asking more. Would you do more in my life? Would you draw me closer to you? Would you, Father, draw me into more intimate knowledge of you personally through the scripture? Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? God, would you empower me? Would you use me? Would you fill me? God, would you please do? I want to wait. I am dependent. It's a moving waiting. We're moving. We're living. We got stuff to do. Everybody does. But as we're going, we're dependent. We're expectant. Here's one. We're asking. We're just asking. Sometimes we have not because we ask not. We're just asking on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of our church. We're asking for the protection of God, the power of God. It's good that they're unified and they're praying because they're going to come into some challenges down the road. God's going to move and things are going to happen. They'll be resisted. Some of them will be killed. Some of these guys will be killed. Um, They'll be welcomed some places and not other places. A lot's going to happen. So what a precious time to be unified waiting and praying before they see God move and save, deliver, heal. And as they see the enemy resist all that they're going to do, what a time to be praying and waiting. I'm not making a prophetic statement that we're in a small period and we're about to have Acts 2. I can say we're going to teach on Acts 2 next week. I can definitively say that. But, but I can't say where we are on the clock. But I can say this. God honors humility, desperation, prayer, preparedness, waiting, expectancy, desire, unity, and purpose and mission. God delights to show his strength in those contexts. So may that be where we are. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.